Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And just an advisory to listeners, this episode contains a discussion of suicide. Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Clayton Gerard. My pronouns are he, him. And today I'm here with Dr. Alexander Barrel, author of Undoing Suicidism, a trans queer crit approach to rethinking assisted suicide. In Undoing Suicidism, Alexander Barrel argues that suicidal people are oppressed by what he calls structural suicidism, a hidden oppression that until now has been unnamed and under-theorized. Each year, suicidism and its preventionist script and strategies reproduce violence and cause additional harm and death among suicidal people through forms of criminalization, incarceration, discrimination, stigmatization, and pathologization. This is particularly true for marginalized groups experiencing multiple oppressions, including queer, trans, disabled, or mad people. Undoing suicidism questions the belief that the best way to help suicidal people is through the logic of prevention. Offering a new queer current model of assisted suicide, Alexander Barrel invites us to imagine what could happen if we started thinking about assisted suicide from an anti-suicidist and intersectional framework. So thank you so much for being here with me today, Dr. Barrel. To begin the interview, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. So I'm an associate professor at the University of Ottawa, and my work is situated at the crossroads of uh, gender, queer, trans, disability, crip, and mad cities. Um, I do a little bit as well in critical gerontology and, of course, critical suicidology. Um, so this, those are the main fields of specialization. I am really passionate about marginalized communities and how suicide and assisted suicide specifically impact those uh, marginalized communities. Awesome. Thank you so much for that introduction. I'm really excited to talk with you about Undoing Suicidism. This kind of book, um, I've been looking to find one of these books for a while now, and it brings such insightful and thought-provoking perspectives into the discussion about suicide and prevention, especially drawing on, like you mentioned, queer, trans, disability, and MAD studies. So I'm super excited for our conversation. Um, To begin, talking about your book, Undoing Suicidism. Could you tell us a little bit about how this book came about for you? Yeah, for sure. So the um, the idea for this book project first emerged when uh, during my postdoctoral fellowships in the United States in 2014 at the City University of New York or CUNY, uh, for those who uh, know um, this institution. So at that time, it was a very different project focused on various kinds of uh, uh, crucial but unconventional decision people making about their body including those made by transgender people, but also transabled people, that is people who voluntarily want to acquire a disability, such as becoming deaf, blind, uh, paraplegic, or amputee, people who want to voluntarily acquire HIV, also called bug chasers, as well as people who want to to die. So, however, the book was not as it is now focused on suicide and assisted suicide. Only the second part of my book at that time was dedicated to those topics. For various reasons, I've never completed the writing of this previous book and my uh, initial interest to write about suicide and assisted suicide made its way into multiple articles and book chapters uh, I published between 2016 and now, as well as in my current book, of course. And I believe that my book, uh, my new book, is therefore anchored in many ways in that former 
former books project. So in 2020, my partner, who is also an academic, had a sabbatical year and we spent six months in a cabin in the woods without internet. That was wonderful. And it was a Kickstarter in the process of writing this book. So at that time, I began working on suicide and assisted suicide by mobilizing the conceptual tools and theoretical frameworks uh, I have been using since I began graduate studies back in 2003. So feminist and gender theory, queer theory, trans theory, disability, crip and mad theory. And I noticed that scholars in those fields of study were barely engaging with the topic of suicide and assisted suicide. And when doing so, they were discussing suicide from a very negative stance in which suicidality is seen as the ultimate result of structural violence and must be eradicated. Simultaneously, I was reading very interesting work in the field of critical suicidology that was complexifying discourses surrounding suicidality, such as the work of uh, Ian Marsh, uh, Jennifer White, Katrina Jaworski, Scott Fitzpatrick, uh, Amy Chandler, or Isabel Perrault. And I thought it would, it would be very interesting to cross-pollinate those critical reflections on suicide with, with the field of gender, queer, trans, and disability, crip, and mad studies. So I would say that my desire to write a book on suicide and assisted suicide comes from both a personal and an academic interest. I've been a suicidal person since the age of 12. And even though there are periods in my life, such as currently when I'm feeling better, uh, suicidality never really disappears from my life. And much of my work, such as my work in trans, disability, crip, and mad studies, is anchored in my various marginalized identities as a trans person, as a disabled person, as a mad person. So my writing and research helped me to better understand my lived experience and to connect it to broader social, political, and legal contexts. So I guess that my interest uh, in suicide comes from this needs to understand my my own subjective experience of suicidality and to situate it in a larger social political context. And in terms of my academic interest, I've been uh, driven in my career to try to understand how various social movements and their related fields of study often, despite their best intentions, reproduce forms of marginalization, discrimination, and oppression towards certain people. So in this case, I was interested in how social movements who are very keen to put forth the voices of the first people concerned nevertheless quickly dismiss the voices, ideas, and claims of suicidal people and even reproduce oppression towards them. Also, I was astonished to learn that no concept existed to name the oppression of suicidal people until I coined the term suicidism. So my hope is that my book provides the tools to help us suicidal people to name our oppression, to connect with other suicidal people, and also build solidarities with other social movements. Thank you for going over that. I love hearing about how books come about for people and the motivation and inspiration behind, um, you know, what we actually can hold in our hands. So to follow along with what you just ended on, can you describe this oppression that suicidal people experience, which you've called suicidism? Why is it important to give this experience of, of oppression a name, and how does it intersect with other regimes of oppression like racism, colonialism, ableism, sanism, and so on? Yes, so suicidism refers to an oppressive system that functions at the normative, medical, legal, social, political, economic, and epistemic levels, a system in which suicidal people experience multiple forms of injustice and violence, such as you mentioned it earlier, discrimination, stigmatization, exclusion, pathologization, and even forms of incarceration. 
Um, our society is replete with horrific stories of suicidal individuals facing inhuman treatment after expressing their suicidal ideations in order to save their lives at all costs, from being hospitalized and drugged against their will to being handcuffed and shot by police to losing their jobs, to having their parental rights revoked, to even being kicked off university campuses. So because of these negative consequences, suicidal people remain silent and complete their suicides without reaching out for help to anyone. As I always say, Every single suicide, completed suicide, is the proof that what we are doing, doing currently is not working because each of those people did not call for help before completing their suicide in the few days before, in the few hours before. So these stories illustrate that despite the supportive discourses surrounding suicidality, suicidal people who call for help do not find the promised support. And worse, I argue in the book that suicide prevention services do more harm than good. Simply put, suicide prevention often increases deaths by suicide rather than prevents them. So it's quite paradoxical. And this is especially true, as you mentioned in the introduction, for marginalized suicidal people, such as indigenous, racialized, poor, queer, trans, disabled, neurodivergent, and mad individuals for whom suicide intervention often increases the racist, colonialist, classist, sexist, heterosexist, cisgenderist, ableist, and sanest violence they experience. To give only a few examples, uh, emergency services and police, po police officers won't react the same way if they are called for a suicide crisis, if the person involved is a white woman living in a wealthy neighborhood versus if the person is a black man living in a poor neighborhood or a neurodivergent person who, in the midst of the intervention, panics and start kickings and screaming. So many researchers, including Susan Steffen, have shown that suicide by cops or what we can literally call murders by cops happens when police is called to respond to suicide crisis scenes and particularly when it comes to marginalized communities. In other words, suicidism is interlocked with classism and racism, colonialism, heterosexism, ableism, and other forms of oppression. Some community organizations such as Trends Lifeline, uh, Hotline in the US and in Canada, where I'm from, um, <clears throat> who work with trans and non-binary people argue, as I do in my work, that non-consensual rescue of suicidal people intensifies suicidality due to the inhuman, harmful, and violent treatment imposed on marginalized subjects by the police, healthcare providers, and other parties. In short, rather than finding the comfort, support, and care that they are looking for, a majority of marginalized people experience discrimination, microaggressions, trauma, and incarceration by reaching out for help, which seems counterproductive and completely unacceptable. So the thesis I put forth is that suicidal people are oppressed by suicidism and that the oppression they experience remains under-theorized, including in our social movements and in queer, trans, disability, mad studies, and critical suicidology. And regarding your question about why is it important to give this oppression a name? The response is quite simple. Naming the structural violence we experience as a group, in this case as suicidal people, collectivizing and politicizing our common experience of violence, microaggression, pathologization and criminalization, allow us, as is the case with all other marginalized groups, to denounce the systemic oppression we are experiencing on a daily level in all spheres of our lives and to stop seeing them as individual experiences or individuals' problems to solve through cures. 
As I explained in the book, with the help of framework uh, such as epistemic injustices, as coined by Miranda Fricker, not having terms and concept with which to name our oppression and daily struggles constitutes a form of hermeneutical injustice. Our oppression as suicidal people starts with this epistemic scarcity surrounding suicidism to the point of not even having a term with which to denounce it, to politicize it. So suicidism is the word I sought for years until I coined it in 2016. And it is uh, the concept many of us have been searching for as evidenced by texts written now by self-identified scholars in the response to my work on suicidism. I'm thinking here, for example, of Loretta Lemaster or Emily Krebs, who mobilize in their PhD thesis, my theoretical framework on suicidism and say that although this oppression is not new, Giving it a specific name, suicidism, is very important since it permits us to rally around the cause and, and fighting against the oppression suicidal people face. The necessity for this concept is also evidenced by the numerous emails I have received over the years from suicidal people telling me that they had been thinking about the oppression suicidal people face but did not have a term to name it. Many suicidal individuals have written to me to express their gratitude for the fact that my work has provided them with theories and concepts and tools that make sense of their harsh experiences in the world. So since the publication of my book, those emails keeps multiplying, uh, as you can imagine, and they testify, I believe, to this deep need we have as a community of people to create multiple theoretical tools and concepts such as those I propose in the book to help combat suicidism and its destructive consequences on uh, suicidal people. Great. Thank you for going over that with us. It's such a huge deal, like you mentioned, to name these kinds of things. And that's only the foundation of where the book goes. One of the key concepts that you talk about is kind of this idea of compulsory aliveness, which you talk about in the introduction and some of the first few chapters, you say, under compulsory aliveness, suicidal people's experiences of incarceration are disguised and justified as care. And you alluded to some of the negative experiences people have when they can seek help when they're in those dire and distressing situations if they're suicidal, but can you share about how compulsory aliveness shows up in our current preventionist scripts and how it often masks harm in the name of care? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I think in order to answer these questions, I first need to describe a little bit what I mean by uh, compulsory aliveness. So inspired by the notion of compulsory heterosexuality theorized by uh, Adrian Rich or Judith Butler, or the notion of compulsory able-bodiness or able-mindness theorized uh, by disability, crip, and mad scholars such as uh, Robert McCrew or Alison Kafer. The theoretical framework on suicidism I propose allows for a rethinking of what I called in one of my earlier essays published in uh, Disability Studies Quarterly in uh, 2020, uh, Compulsory Aliveness. So I argue that compulsory aliveness represents the normative component of suicidism and includes various injunctions or what we could or what could be seen as moral imperatives, including what I've called uh, in the last few years in various articles and chapters, the injunction to live into futurity. So compulsory aliveness as an apparatus function through a wide array of tools and mechanisms, such as laws, uh, regulations, attitudes, discourses, and so on. And it translates into what I call in the book the suicide preventionist script, which represents the dominant response to suicidality, and that could be summarized as follow, very simple. Suicide is never an option. 
particularly not for suicidal people. As a dominant system of intelligibility within a suicidist regime, compulsory aliveness masks its own historicity and mechanism of operation, which give life an apparently stable and natural character. Yet, this stability and this naturalness stem from performative statements about the desire to live. So by modelizing Judith Butler's thesis on gender as performative, I see the desire to live as performative as well. Indeed, institutions, social policies, laws, practices, intervention, theories, and discourses shape the desire to live and present it in a similar way to how we present gender as if it were a natural, stable, unchangeable desire, whereas in fact it results from norms, discourses, pressures, and practices that remain invisible within a suicidist regime. And reversely, the desire to die is seen as abnormal and pathological, regardless of whether this pathology is identified in the individual or if in the social political structures of society. In the spirit of Sarah Hamed, suspension of the presumption that happiness is necessarily a good thing, I wonder in the book what kind of new relationship to suicidality and suicidal people could emerge if we let go of the injunction to live into futurity and suspend our adherence to compulsory aliveness. As Ahmed does in relation to happiness, I'm interested in tracking the effects of the presence of compulsory aliveness on marginalized groups, including suicidal people. And this is important to do because the injunction to live into futurity, like the injunction to happiness, is used to justify the oppression of the most marginalized groups. And in my book, I ask the question, what does it mean in this context to have not only a happiness duty, but also a life duty implemented through a vast array of mechanisms and carceral institutions in the name of care, as you were asking in the question. So as I mentioned earlier, in the name of protecting vulnerable people from themselves and saving their lives at all costs, we imposed upon them inhuman treatments such as involuntary institutionalization and and incarceration and forced pharmaceutical or behavioral treatments. As I argue in the book, as well as in a forthcoming chapter on this topic, suicide prevention and its goal of eradicating suicidality in suicidal subjects could be compared to some extent to conversion therapies for queer and trans subjects. Conversion therapies are designed to realign misalign subjects into normative sexual and gender identities. And in a similar way, suicide prevention aims to fix suicidal people and to reorient them toward a good life, most of the time without asking them what they really want and need. So the problem and solution has been identified without consulting the first people concerned, suicidal people, and the intervention plans are applied regardless of whether suicidal people feel it is helpful or harmful. In the same way that scholar, scholars, activists in disability and mad studies ask us to look at the care we offer to disabled and mad people from a new lens, in my book, I invite us to transform our vision about the support and care we offer to suicidal people in suicidist society. So compulsory aliveness and its injunction to live into futurity in a suicidist regime is materialized through what I call suicide prevention violence. And it could be conceptualized alongside what Jung Kim has called curative violence. That is a cure that aims to be a remedy, but that simultaneously harms. As curative violence, suicide prevention violence conceptualizes suicidality as nothing more than a problem to fix and cure. 
So suicide prevention is presented as a solution, but this remedy is simultaneously deadly for suicidal people because it prevents them from reaching out for help for fear of experiencing suicidal violence and discrimination. Suicide prevention refuses to leave any room for suicidality in the life of suicidal people and therefore justifies physical, material, and epistemic violence towards suicidal people in the name of cure. In sum, while it appears that our society and social movements care about suicidal people, I reveal in the book that through a preventionist script, we are in fact exercising systemic violence, discrimination, and pathologization against suicidal people. And the preventionist scripts fueled by suicidism, compulsory aliveness, and its injunction to live into futurity forces us to take an unaccountable and uncompassionate approach towards suicidal people. But sadly, this curative logic of prevention uh, is not helpful for um, suicidal people. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. It's such a complex issue, but I appreciate you talking through all those different points. And I'd love to follow along this thread of the injunction to live and to futurity. It's such a core concept throughout your book. Can you speak to ways this concept surfaces in issues of suicidism, as well as its deeper negative impacts in more general ways on marginalized groups? Yes, for sure. So <clears throat> the concept of the, the injunction to live and to futurity has been a core concept in my work, I would say since 2016, and a key concept of my book. And I have been inspired by many authors, but two authors in particular, so Hans Betkovich and Zoré uh, Bayatrizi. And even though none of those authors proposes the notion of the injunction to live and to futurity per se, Svetkovich discusses the moral imperatives to stay alive in her book, Depression, and Bayatrizi mentions the idea of a life sentence in the title of her book. So in my book, I explain how this injunction to live and to futurity is part of a larger normative system, compulsory aliveness. Simply put, the injunction to live and to futurity aims to impose life and a future to everyone, except those cast by dominant ageist, ableist, and sanest norms as quote-unquote unproductive or unsalvageable subjects in our neoliberal economy. So if you are young, are otherwise physically healthy, and specifically if you attempt to end your life, emergency personnel will save you even against your will. In fact, all discourses, institutions, practices, and interventions are anchored in this injunction to live and to futurity in order to prevent all suicide from happening. Unsurprisingly, many marginalized groups are overrepresented in statistics of suicidality, which includes suicide ideations, suicide attempts, and in some cases, completed suicides. So for example, some studies show that trans and non-binary people have between eight and 20 times more chances than the rest of the population to experience suicidality. What it means is that many marginalized groups have crucial needs to help them cope with the distress they experience, but their support needs remain unmet through current suicide prevention services, as is generally also the case for suicidal people. As I have shown in my work, the majority of current prevention services fails to reach suicidal people, especially those who are the most determined to die or who belong to marginalized groups such as trans people. Many suicidal people belonging to racialized, queer, trans, disabled, mad, or neurodiverse communities testify that they learn literally to shut up about wanting to die to avoid negative consequences associated with revealing their suicidality. This is supported by a great deal of research demonstrating that suicidal people particularly those from marginalized groups and those very determined to die, do not feel safe to ask for help. 
the horrific experiences that some people go through as a result of disclosing their suicidal ideations are so difficult that many say, as is the case in the Radford and colleagues study of trans people, that they would prefer to die than to seek help and deal with negative consequences. In other words, suicide prevention measures that aims to save lives at all costs and that are guided by this injunction to live into futurity have huge costs in the lives of marginalized suicidal individuals. Following some observations made by Trans Lifeline, to use this example among many others, I identify a series of negative consequences associated with non-consensual rescues based on this injunction to live and that affect trans communities. For example, non-consensual rescues often out trans people to their relatives and families, and such forms of outing can lead to further rejection, expulsion from the home, and violence. Those rescues often involve fees, ambulance, hospitalization, and so on for trans people who are already overrepresented in statistics on poverty. Additionally, involuntary hospitalization and histories of mental health issues, particularly suicide, may negatively impact access to transaffirmative health care by delaying or blocking care. <clears throat> Furthermore, interactions with the healthcare system and social services often include stigmatization and violence, as we know. And finally, those rescues break the trust of potential hotline callers who may fear that the operators will initiate a non-consensual active rescues. Uh, <clears throat> and therefore, in other words, a hotline that supports coercive suicide prevention measures, which is the case with 99% of hotlines in Canada and in the US, does not elicit trust or confidence. In some, in addition to their suicidality, suicidal people, particularly those who belong to marginalized groups, experience more distress often in their interaction with prevention services. So paradoxically, the injunction to live and to futurity imposed on suicidal subjects increases suicidality instead of reducing it. Awesome, thank you for talking through that. So to continue along, um, you discuss in chapter one the four theoretical frameworks of conceptualizing suicide that are in the literature and the research so far, which is the best overview of the various models that I've come across. So thank you for that um, you know, research and explaining all those different theoretical models. But could you briefly describe those four frameworks and also talk about how your intervention is unique. Yes, for sure. So <laughs> indeed, it took a lot of research to uh, to gather all the information about those four frameworks and to build my own frameworks. That is a, a fifth model. So in, in my book, I propose a, this typology of four models of suicidality. So the medical and psychological, social, public health, and social justice. So I will go over each of one. First, the, the medical model focuses not only on physiological pathologies coming from genetics or neurobiology, but also on pathologies of the mind and heart, that is, you know, mental and emotional uh, health issues. In the medical model, the problem of suicidality is situated totally or partially in the body or in the mind of the person. Second, influenced by the work of sociologists, the social model of suicide, instead of situating the problem of suicidality solely or primarily in the individual, identifies society and its dysfunction as the culprits. So the social model aims to identify patterns, uh, recurrences, and tendencies between suicidality and social factors, such as economic crisis, wars, social values, familial relationships, marginalized identities, or cultural representations to understand and prevent suicidality. 
Third, falling between the two previous models, the public health model, also known sometimes as the biopsychosocial model of suicidality, is anchored in public health epidemiological approaches and favors evidence-based research and statistical data. This model bridges individualistic and social approaches to promote population health. Adopted by many healthcare professionals and even the, the World Health Organization currently, this model informs international suicide prevention guidelines and strategies. Fourth, the social justice model of suicide has been put forward by critical suicidologists in the last decade or so. In opposition to a psychocentric and individualist approach to suicidality, this model focuses on the collective, structural, and systemic, social, cultural, political factors that influence suicidality. It's a model that goes beyond the social model and the public health model by not only taking into consideration environmental and social factors that impact suicidality, but also by being politically engaged and committed to social justice. Many scholars who adopt this model are working at the intersection of other anti-oppressive fields of study, such as critical race studies, queer studies, trans studies, and so on. What I want to show, what I show in my work is that despite numerous differences, these models arrive at the same conclusion. Suicide is not a good option for suicidal people. As a result, not only do these models fail to recognize the suicide suppression faced by suicidal people, but they also perpetuate it through a suicidist preventionist script, as I discussed earlier. And one of the most perverse effects of the preventionist script is the silencing of suicidal people. Indeed, they are encouraged to share their suicidal ideations, but are discouraged from pursuing suicide as a valid option. In other words, suicidal ideation can be explored, but suicide itself remains completely taboo. What quantitative studies show is that suicide statistics, however, remain relatively stable and have not uh, improved significantly over the past decades. So despite multiple strategies and billions of dollars invested in outreach initi initiatives, studies show that the those most determined to die carry out their suicidal plans without reaching out for help. And some our prevention strategies based on those various models do not work. So uh, just to be clear, I'm not saying that current discourses, policies, intervention, suicide prevention programs or suicide hotlines based on this suicidist preventionist script never help anyone. Neither am I condemning suicidal people who search for cures, cures, be they medical or social. As a suicidal person, I know myself how we struggle a lot of the time and we want to feel better. But I, I, I want simply to highlight here how all these models anchored in compulsory aliveness cannot imagine anything other than prevention to help suicidal people. Indeed, in the various models of suicidality, as well as in the views of the right to die activists who promote assisted death for older, sick, and disabled people, suicidal people must be kept alive in all those models. So in all these contradictory but complementary interpretations, suicidality needs to be eradicated to help suicidal people. And in the cases where suicide is not seen as a negative action to be absolutely avoided, suicide is presented as a negative right, that is, as a personal decision with which we should not interfere, but not as a positive right that should be supported by the state and society. In my queer crip model of suicide, the fifth model in this typology, 
I propose that suicide become a positive right. And I can come back to this idea of suicide as a positive right later, but I contend that as surprising as it sounds, allowing assisted suicide for suicidal people might be the only way to reestablish the confidence and trust of suicidal people and to break the silence they experience. And while the primary goal of my queer crip model of assisted suicide is to provide a more human, respectful, and compassionate support for suicidal people rather than save lives at all costs, one of my hypotheses, and that's very important, is that my approach, a suicide affirmative approach that supports assisted suicide for suicidal people might actually save more lives than current prevention strategies do. And this is what makes my framework and approach so unique. In consulting more than 2,000 sources while writing this book and not so long after, I've not found anyone who has ever, to my knowledge, in French and English, uh, propose what I suggest in my book. That is an explicit support of assisted suicide for suicidal people. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. That's a lot of information and I appreciate that you've kind of broken it down in ways that are digestible. And I definitely agree with what you're saying. So I'd love to continue thinking about this, but first I do want to discuss kind of some of the um discussion around assisted suicide. So in chapter three, you rethink mad and disabled suicide. Would you be able to speak more about the exceptionalism of suicidal people in mad and disability studies and communities? What are some of the tensions at play here and how are some forms of death and suicide legitimized while others are delegitimized? Yes, for sure. <clears throat> and it's a very um, hot topic and contentious uh, debate. And there are a lot of fraught discussions surrounding those, those questions. So the exceptionalism regarding the suicidality of disabled, sick, ill people in comparison with those regarded as able-bodied, healthy, and sane as framed the, the binary position between suicide and physician-assisted death, or what is sometimes called assisted death, assisted suicide, or voluntary euthanasia. And this exceptionalism has long been critiqued by disability activists and scholars. For example, Carol J. Gill dedicated several papers uh, to what she calls selective suicide intervention that marginalizes disabled people based on the devaluation of their lives. Gill points out double standards about suicidality based on disability status, which exist in society and among healthcare practitioners and professionals. When an able-bodied individual expresses a wish to die, they are characterized as suicidal and targeted by suicide prevention interventions and the injunction to live into futurity, as I discussed earlier. But when this individual is disabled, the desire to die is recast as rational. In my book, I show how suicidism is therefore linked to ableism and sanism, that is the oppression towards people considered insane, quote unquote. I argue that suicidism makes some people's desired for death abnormal and inconceivable. In contrast, we legitimize assisted suicide for those cast as, quote unquote, unproductive and undesirable based on dominant norms such as, uh, such as disabled, sick, ill, or old people. In their case, specifically, their desire for death is considered normal and rebranded as medical assistance in dying or physician-assisted death. However, suicidal people's desire for death is cast as crazy, irrational, mad, insane, alienated, and they are stripped of their decision-making capacity. 
In other words, from an ableist, sanist, ageist, and capitalist perspective, people who are seen as unproductive or quote-unquote a burden in our society are supported to die through medical assistance in dying and forms of assisted death, while suicidal people who are seen as having productive futures are excluded from these laws and forced to stay alive. In other words, the physician-assisted death ontology, that is what assisted death is, founded in ableism and sanism, among many other oppressive systems, and on the systemic dismissal of the quality of life of disabled, sick, and ill people, creates, as I discussed this in an early article I published on the topic in uh, 2017, it was in a journal called uh, Somatechnics, I was saying that it creates two classes of suicidal subjects, by considering physically disabled or ill people as legitimate subjects who should receive assistance in dying and suicidal people as illegitimate subject who must be kept alive. My work asked the following question, and this is very central to my, to my book. Why are we offering assistance in dying to disabled, sick, ill, old people who, in the vast majority of cases, don't want to die but ask for better living conditions and are driven to despair by the lack of help, while those who do want to die, such as suicidal people, are denied any assistance and forced to die alone in atrocious conditions? It's important to mention, however, that uh, in all national contexts that allow some forms of medical assistance in dying or physician-assisted uh, death or suicide, suicidal people are excluded. Only people who are physically or sometimes mentally ill can have access to those procedures. And these laws specify that no suicidal person should ever be supported in their desire to die. And so even though I mentioned earlier the possibility of offering assisted suicide for suicidal people through the notion of positive right, I want to make it clear that my approach is radically distinct from that of offering medical assistance in dying for people for whom mental illness is the sole condition of their request. In my work, I advocate for the abolition of these discriminatory laws on medical assistance in dying that allow assisted suicide only for quote unquote special populations based on dominant norms of who should live or die. And I would like to see the creation of new laws and policies surrounding assisted suicide for all adults who have a stable desire to die, including suicidal people. In other words, my approach is not based on a physical or a mental illness or disability diagnosis as the criterion for allowing assisted suicide. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate how you tease out the nuance and all these different issues throughout the book. It's very important and it's a very complicated topic. So you did an amazing job talking through that and writing through that in the book. In part two of your book, you speak specifically to assisted suicide, and you really walk through your suicide affirmative approach, um, which is also very complex. You say, quote, I believe that queering, transing, cripping, and maddening assisted suicide involve working toward the creation of real accessibility to assisted suicide for suicidal people, such as through suicide affirmative health care. Can you speak to how this is based on your anti-oppressive approach and what it means to be suicide affirmative by accompanying suicidal people through their journeys? <laughs> Yes, first, I want to say that, and it's very important, that while my approach to suicide and assisted suicide is radically different, it's not intended to encourage suicide. On the contrary, I'm hopeful it will reduce suicide rates, and we will put, if it's possible, uh, some hotline numbers and crisis number um for the, the podcast today. So it's really important to understand that. Uh, 
Second, I would like to explain what I mean by using the verb, the verbs queering and trancing before going forward with the, the rest of my response. So for me, queering and trancing suicidality means allowing suicidal people to change the normative discourses on suicidality based on their own perspectives, needs, and goals. Queering and trancing suicidality blurs the the boundaries between good and bad decisions about health, life, and death, between the rationality and irrationality of certain actions, between positive and negative effects, and it also means questioning the useful usefulness of these ca binary categories altogether. To queer and to trans suicidality makes possible to re-signify the negative meanings automatically attributed to it to allow different narratives to emerge. Queering and trancing suicide allow to unpack the idea that the best way to help suicidal people is through prevention. And additionally, cripping and maddening assisted suicide allow me to conceptualize form of assisted suicide or physician-assisted death that is not based on forms of ableism, sanism, ageism, and so many other isms, as is currently the case. So... As you mentioned in your, your question, one of the most radical ideas of my book, and probably one of the most controversial, is indeed to theorize suicide as a positive right that would involve supporting suicidal people in their quest for death through assisted suicide. My queer crip model of assisted suicide is meant to complement, not supersede, the fight against systemic oppressions that influence suicidality in marginalized groups. The support offered to suicidal people would be delivered through a suicide affirmative approach and suicide affirmative healthcare. My suicide affirmative approach is inspired by trans affirmative approaches to rethink the care offered to trans people, not based on forms of control and gatekeeping, but based on supporting their autonomy. My approach is anchored in anti-oppressive values, uh, intersectionality, self-determination, informed consent, and harm reduction. A suicide affirmative approach does not mean pushing suicidal people to suicide, just as the goal of the trans affirmative approach is not to push a person to transition, right? So rather, it means that instead of trying to cure trans people of their transness or suicidal people of their suicidality, we develop safer spaces in which we can examine their suicidality with them and discuss a variety of options. My approach proposes to shift from a preventionist and creative logic to a logic of accompaniment to empowers uh, suicidal people, <clears throat> to help them to make the best informed decisions about life and death a form of support that could be both life-affirming and death-affirming. And this shift from prevention to accompaniment is uh, very similar to trans-affirmative approach because the, the suicide-affirmative approach offers care and support through informed consent, an informed consent model that is taking for granted that the expert in the decision to transition, and in this case from life to death, is the person making the decision. In that sense, I work toward a real accessibility to assisted suicide and not an access based on exclusive criteria that are also, as I mentioned, ableist, sanist, and ageist. In other words, I propose to replace the logic of prevention with a logic of accompaniment to empowers the suicidal person. In my approach, and this is very important, the priority is the suicidal person, not life itself. I often say that we are regarding the theorization of suicidism and the rights and recognition of suicidal people, where trans people were regarding trans rights and recognition in the 1930s. Indeed, Everything needs to be imagined, theorized, and transformed, as was the case for trans people when transitioning was not even an option. Uh, 
So my work constitutes a first step, a baby step, we can say, in this uh, direction. It allows us to open our hearts, our imaginations, when it comes to the possibility of envisioning suicide and assisted suicide from a different point of view, from the standpoint of suicidal people, as I mentioned in the book. My queer crip model of assisted suicide is meant to open up our imagine to our imaginations, to what our discourses, our practices might look like if we begin to think about assisted suicide within an anti-suicidist, intersectional, and transformative justice framework. And my hypothesis is that a suicide affirmative approach, despite this greater accessibility to assisted suicide, might actually save more lives than current prevention strategies. Indeed, rather than being forced to die in secrecy by completing their suicide without consulting anyone due to fear of experiencing suicidal consequences, suicidal people in my non-stigmatizing approach would have the chance to speak freely and to benefit from an accompaniment process to reach an informed decisions about their desire to live or die. So numerous suicidal people have written to tell me that they totally agree with my argument. Maybe one last thing I would like to say is that at first, people might think that my book, which discusses a politics of death, a suicide affirmative approach, and the possibility to assist the suicide of suicidal people, constitutes a forms of banalization of death that would be characterized by pessimism and the hopelessness. However, people who take the time to read my arguments actually discover a book filled with hope and passion to build a better world for all marginalized groups, including suicidal people. So despite the fact that I'm critiquing following authors such as Sarah Hamed, Jack Alberstam, the notion of hope itself, the toxic positivity, the injunction to happiness, and the idea behind a successful life, the book is not all about darkness. I truly believe that my approach has the potential to reduce rates of suicidality, particularly among marginalized groups, by opening the channels of communication with people who are currently too afraid to reach out for help. And even for the small minority of people who would go ahead with an assisted suicide, my book aims to offer them a less lonely and violent death and a relational process of dying that would also be less traumatic for family and friends than current completed suicide. So the approach I have in mind opens not only a space in which death by assisted suicide may occur, but also a space in which to openly discuss what it means to live with a desire to die. And in that sense, the politics of death I propose is a politics not only for suicidal people, but for all people interested in fighting for social justice when it comes to death, suicide and assisted suicide. And in that sense, it represents, I believe, an ethics of living with suicidal people. Yeah, I definitely agree. Your book casts a vision that's, you know, a lot more relational and less lonely. And this is epitomized just in how you talk about this approach being person-centered instead of valuing life above everything else. So I would definitely echo those sentiments. So as we're wrapping up, you close the book talking about more practical steps and more practical interventions to be made, not only to be anti or anti-suicidism, but also to be more um, relational in those capacities and to be more um, or to accompany people throughout this process. Um, you say, quote, simply studying and describing suicidism is not enough. We must also work to eliminate it. Undoing suicidism is my call for action and collective mobilization through a politics of death. What was this process like doing so much theoretical work in the book, yet also making sure that it can be 
practical for people's everyday lives, especially for such a um, charged issue. <clears throat> yeah. While writing the book, uh, I had three key messages that I wanted to deliver uh, that are also linked to my desire, despite the, the theoretical aspect of my work, to articulate ideas that could have practical implications for people's everyday lives. And the first, I would say, concrete takeaways of un undoing suicidism is that if we are really committed to helping suicidal people, particularly those the most determined to die and who currently complete their suicide, we need to first acknowledge that we do almost everything wrong. As simple as that. <laughs> the second takeaway is that suicidal people have important messages to convey and the general public, decision makers, researchers and practitioners should start paying attention to what suicidal people have to say and consider them as experts of what they experience and what they need. And the last takeaway is that despite a multiplicity of prevention strategies, as I discuss, that have been implemented in various countries decade after decade, despite a few ebbs and flows in the statistics of suicide, we don't see a significant decrease of suicide rates. So again, what this indicates is that what we have been doing so far doesn't work and that it might be time to try solutions completely outside the box, such as the one I'm proposing in this book. And despite being first and foremost, a philosophical contribution, my book on doing suicidism is written with a desire to blur the lines between those inside and outside academia. I propose following Jay Dolmage uh, that using simple and plain language is one way to deconstruct this insider-outsider perspective and to strike back against academic ableism. It's in the same spirit of accessibility, including for those who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, that I decided to make this book freely available through open access on the internet. In addition to making this book accessible for everyone, I've, I also have many hopes now that my book is out in the world and is circulating. First, I, I hope to offer reflection that could nurture the emergence of a new social movement, the anti-suicidist movement, a movement by and for suicidal people. And I start seeing the emergence of that. Second, I hope that readers will discover that the suicide affirmative approach I propose will cause no further harm to suicidal people, quite the contrary. In addition to potentially saving more lives, the gradual passage from prevention to accompaniment would contribute to better interactions with suicidal people and better care for them. Third, I hope that the theoretical framework I offer, which remains necessarily incomplete on so many levels, will be picked up by uh, others pe other people who may point out the imbrication that suicidism has with colonialism, racism, classism, ageism, and other forms of violence. And I see this book as a starting point for those very concrete conversations. I just got funding for a research project to analyze how suicidism is interlocked with all those other forms of violence. And despite the, the theoretical core of my book, I can already see how it touches people's hearts and minds. Uh, the emails I receive from people all around the world give me hope that and the feeling that some things are starting to shift. These include emails from suicidal people telling me that my book provides words, concept, uh, theories to what they have been experiencing for years. In my book, I decided um, if, if people uh, buy it or download it um, on the internet, will, they will see, I decided to be more vocal about my own suicidality. And while I was scared to integrate those personal experiences at first, I thought it was necessary to do so since I'm calling for the creation of an anti-suicidist movement. And I believe that this personal tone in my book elicits trust from other suicidal people. 
I also receive emails from physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and activists saying that my work resonates with their vision, values, philosophies, experience, and practice. In fact, I'm currently a consultant for a few local and national organizations to help them to implement an anti-suicidist approach in their suicide intervention plans and guidelines. And there are already some community organizations such as Autisme Soutien, so it's a peer help group by and for autistic people that have decided to embrace my anti-suicidist approach in the online support they offer to autistic people in distress. I finally think that the more the book will circulate, the more we will see concrete applications of the framework I, and approach I propose. The dissemination of my framework on suicidism has already started in various mediums, such as students using it as a theoretical framework in their thesis or people discussing in non-academic ways what suicidism means on blogs and social media. I saw some posts on Instagram about it, so uh, this is not my thing, but I'm happy that people talk about it on Instagram. I also recently gave an interview to a playwright who is doing documentary theater, a form of theater that integrates uh, documentary materials, interviews, and so on into a play. And this person whose father died by suicide fell in love with the ideas I'm proposing and wants to educate the general public through the art form about the necessity to change our perceptions, discourses, and interventions regarding suicide and assisted suicide to better support not only suicidal people themselves, but also their families, like her and her brother, who were, you know, uh, touched and impacted by the death of their father. So in a year or two from now, some excerpts from that interview will make their way into the play and an actor will play my role. So this is the first time that my academic ideas and concepts will be transformed into an artistic project. And to be honest, I'm quite excited at the prospect of seeing this play and hearing comments from the public, because I believe that this project will touch the audience, different kinds of audience, uh, in a way that the, the book cannot. So, yeah. Awesome. That's great to hear about. I'm so excited to hear about the reach that this book is having. So, um, Dr. Beryl, I've really appreciated this conversation. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Before we wrap up, I wanted to just give you the floor in case there was anything that we missed that you would like to go over or any other work that you're doing that you are excited about sharing. I just wanted to make sure you have the space to do so. Well, maybe one last thing I would like to say is that if you are experiencing suicidality, if you feel lonely, if you feel isolated, it's important to reach out. It's important to talk about it. And there are safer, safer spaces to do so. And it's possible to connect with other people who are, um, sharing the same kind of perspectives and values. So please don't hesitate to use those resources and to connect with other people. Awesome. Thank you for speaking to that. We can be sure to include any resources you would like in the show notes for the podcast episode, as well as a link to the open access book. So with that being said, again, thank you so much, Dr. Barrel, for joining me today and having this beautiful conversation. I've really appreciated the chance to read your book and getting into this work that you've spent so much time and energy on. Just want to say thank you for sharing it with us in the world. Thank you so much, Clayton.